Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. If you're just joining us for the first time today or you're listening online for the first time and uh, you're catching us mid-series, we've been going through uh, Genesis chapter 4 and really kind of hovering over that chapter and kind of dissecting it. It's a chapter that may, even if you've not been a part of the church or aware of Bible stuff, uh, entitled Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel were brothers in the Old Testament. They were sons of Adam and Eve. And uh, Cain killed Abel. I uh, didn't mean to give you the spoiler alert, but that's what happens in the story. And we've been unpacking that and dissecting that actually over the past several weeks. We'll be concluding next week, uh, chapter four. But um, if you've not caught up to it by now, go back and listen to the other sermons. This has been a, a difficult sermon series to preach. And really, as we've been going through this love series, actually, the theme of love throughout this whole year, uh, we've come to this aspect of love in Genesis chapter 4 that is not jealous. As we've been kind of breaking apart this definition of what love is and what it's not. Love is not jealous. And we see through the act of Cain and Cain's jealousy over his brother or because of his brother Abel, um, this great atrocity of murder happens. What about jealousy is wrong? Because some of you have asked me this question. Well, God's a jealous God. It says it in the Bible. So if God is a jealous God, but love is not jealous, that seems to contradict terms, right? Because if we go to the New Testament and we look at the apostle John or the disciple John, that was one of the 12 disciples with Jesus. He not only wrote the Gospel of John, but he wrote three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, later on, almost, almost to the book of Revelation. So if you're looking for those books, that's where they would be in the Bible, almost to the very back. And in 1st John, John describes God as love. He, dis- he defines him as love. He says, in two occasions, God is love. God is love. But love is not jealous. What do we do with this? Because I know you may have been asking the question. I thought I'd give you this before we get into the meat of the text today and really talk about what is the difference between God's jealousy and human jealousy. So let's break this down real quick and then we'll get into the text this morning. In our series this month, we've been focusing on this theme, jealousy, as we've been going through this year of love. And since there are many passages in the Bible that describe God as a jealous God, we need to look at the context of those instances really quickly this morning uh, where God expresses jealousy. I, your God, am a jealous God, he says. Deuteronomy and Exodus... We read those, we read the descriptions of that. But why is he jealous, and is it the same kind of jealousy that we experience? The word jealous or jealousy, as it's more accurately rendered when referring to God, is called zeal or being zealous, 
all right? That doesn't mean we can't be zealous, but God is zealous, but it's closely tied to this terminology of jealousy. They may be both used in a good sense and a bad sense. When applied to God, they denote that God is intensely concerned for his own character and his own reputation. Now, why is that a big deal? We think, well, I'm concerned about my character and reputation. Yeah, but you're fallen, you're broken, you're not perfect, you're sinful. Is God fallen, broken, imperfect, or sinful? Okay, so he's not, but we are. Do you see the basis for God's jealousy being something different than ours? He's concerned about his character and reputation. Why? Because it's perfect. And when anybody tries to mar that character or reputation, it angers him. Not because he's selfish, because love is not selfish, but because he is God. We like to put ourselves on this plane of existence with God. What was the deception in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 that the serpent tried to trick Eve into eating the fruit from? You will be like God if you eat this. And we've been striving for that since our very existence. We want to be Lord of our own lives. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. Only God can be God, though. We can't be God. Nobody else in the world can be God. No, no leader of any country, no matter how tyrannical or how much of a dictator they are, could ever be God. They may be able to impose these rules on people, but they can never be God of the individual. So do you catch the distinctiveness between the two? Only God can be God, and God's righteous moral existence, he is who he is, right? He's standing before Moses, who can I say is sending me to set the Israelites free in Egypt? I am who I am. I've always existed. I never had a beginning, I will never have an end. I just am. I am the eternally existent one, and nothing can ever change that. So if God is perfect and he is holy, it stands to reason that when he is jealous, it is for perfect and holy reasons. But when we as humans are jealous, in our brokenness and in our fallenness, what kind of jealousy do we have? Not great. Because we're jealous for our character and our reputation or over different things. And what's wrong with our character and reputation? It's been marred by sin. Even if we are a believer in Christ, it should wipe away that jealousy. But if we get jealous as a believer in Christ, we're still, though we're rooted in Christ, there's, we can't equate ourselves with the Almighty. He has given us his grace and his son, and he counts us as a son or a daughter of the most high king of kings and lord of lords if we've been adopted into his family through Jesus Christ. But we are not God. We are still distinctively different and separate from God. So the difference between human jealousy and divine jealousy is insecurity. You can write that down. I don't have that in your notes, I don't think. Maybe I do. Human jealousy is rooted in insecurity, but God's jealousy is rooted in his love for humanity. There's the distinctive difference. Human jealousy drives a person inward, whereas divine jealousy drives God outward. 
With this in mind, I want us to look at the passage of Scripture today that we're going to be breaking apart in Genesis chapter 4. We've come up on the scene, Cain and Abel. Cain offers uh, some of his crops to God, and Abel gives the first fruit of his, of his herds to God, the best. God accepts Abel and his offering. He rejects Cain and his offering. This makes Cain very angry, and he looks dejected. And God comes to him and says, whoa, 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 why are you so angry, Cain? What, what's wrong? If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. But be careful, sin is crouching at your door. But you must master it, you must overcome it. And then the very next scene, we see Cain saying to his brother Abel, hey, come out into the field with me. And so Abel follows Cain into the field. And while there, Cain's anger bursts forth against his brother. And Abel dies. More than likely buried in a shallow grave, God comes to him and says, Hey, Cain, where's your brother? Your brother Abel, where is he? And Cain's response is, I don't know. Yes, he does. Blatantly lying to God, who knows that Cain is lying. And as if one lie isn't bad enough, he perpetuates a bigger lie by saying, am I my brother's keeper? And God would say, yeah, but he doesn't in this passage. He does later on throughout the course of the scripture. Today we come up on the scene where God says, I know where your brother is, and it's not looking good for you either. In verses 10 through 12. But the Lord said, sorry, go on to verse 12. I just totally paraphrased the whole thing. There we go. But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. He knows where Abel is. God is not unaware of Abel's plight and what happened to him. It cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you'll be home, a homeless wanderer on the earth. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So here's the key point. Jealousy's punishment is the bitter curse of isolation. Have you ever carried jealousy? Have you ever been jealous? Has anybody ever been jealous of you? What happens when jealousy has its way in a person's life? It ultimately separates them from the object of their desire. The bitter curse of isolation. Jealousy would lead us to believe that what we're jealous of, if we continue to be jealous, we can have it more. But see, this is the trick of the lie of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He takes this emotion, this feeling, this action of jealousy, and he makes us believe that it will, if we're jealous enough, we'll be able to get what we want. When the actual opposite is what happens. I say this in relationships, when I've done counseling with relationships before, is that 
can you hold more water in a cupped hand than a closed fist? So the tighter you grip something, the less you can hold on to it, especially those things that are loosely held in the hand, like sand. If you go to the beach, right, you scoop up the sand. If I squeeze my fist really tight, it squeezes out through the sides and in between my fingers. Same thing with a cupped hand. If I scoop water and I squeeze it, I lose all the water in my hand. Same thing with relationships. The tighter you hold on to the relationship, you can smother it, you can kill it. This is what jealousy does, is it squeezes the life. It squeezes the life, not only out of the ones that are the object of our desire. Why was Cain jealous? Why was he angry? Because God rejected him and his offering, but he accepted Abel and his offering. He was jealous of Abel and God's acceptance of him. Well, I want that too. It's not fair. I brought you something. How come you don't give me what you gave him? And God says, because you didn't give me what he gave me. And it wasn't so much the offering as the intent of the heart of the offering which was given. And if you look, it's subtle. You'll skim over it. But if you look intently, you'll see it says Cain only gave some. It's just, you get this imagery of Cain. He's, he's in the fields, he's, it's harvest time, he's gathered his crops, and he's like, oh, I got a bunch, this is great. Uh, here, I'll take a couple buckets of grain and I'll give it to God. Now, it never says he took a couple buckets. But he, get this idea, he takes something to God. And what does Abel do? It's not like uh, he just goes eeny, meeny, miny, moe and figures out which sheep or, or animal he's going to take to God. He stops and he scours and he looks and he finds the best and the most perfect among his flocks. Why? Because he truly loves God. And he's willing to make whatever sacrifice, no matter the cost, for God's sake. So Cain gets angry, he gets dejected because not only does God reject the offering, he rejects Cain. That's what scripture says. He rejected Cain and his offering. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where somebody got something you thought you deserved too? Well, I did, I did some. at least I did something. How come I don't get any credit for it? You ever been in that situation? You see, God doesn't like second best. And if you're God, you don't have to accept second best. We read a couple weeks ago, Malachi chapter 1. That is a tough chapter to read. If you haven't read it, read it. God is upset because of the offerings that people are bringing him. The people of Israel, they've begun to bring him things, and they bring him blind animals. They bring him diseased animals. They bring him those things that are not going to cost them anything because you can't even give that stuff away. It's like, uh, it's like giving something to somebody that's broken. Hey, you want this broken lamp? I want you to have it. I don't want your junk, you know? Or, or here, I, I broke this vase. It's in about 14 million different pieces. I want you to have, this is my gift to you. 
what are you going to say? Um, thanks. And then you're going to walk straight to the trash and dump it. See, this is the mindset and the heart in which people oftentimes give God what they have, but they don't give him the best. And God retains every right to reject the gift and to reject the giver. And we don't like that. That doesn't play into our sense of fairness, especially in our culture today, where everything's got to be fair and equitable for everybody. But there are not equal outcomes for everybody, even though we are created equally. Does that make sense? Just because you bring something doesn't mean it will be accepted. And again, I, I've said this the past several weeks, I'm going to say it again. I admit, and first off, secondly, I repent that I have perpetuated this lie of the enemy. That you bring God whatever you want, he'll, he'll make something out of it. I apologize for that. Because... When you read scripture, it's not what it says. It says you bring him your best. You bring him your all. And I perpetuated this nonsense probably because by the very heart of who I am, I'm a people pleaser. And I want everybody to be happy. Let's just all be one big happy family. I don't wanna make anybody upset. So whatever you bring is good, okay? I think a lot of pastors are people pleasers. And because we don't wanna hurt people's feelings and because we don't wanna make it seem like we're a harsh people, we perpetuate this nonsense that God says, what are you doing? Stop that. And then I'm reminded of James chapter one. Not many of you should presume to be teachers because you'll be judged more strictly. Ugh. So I repent today that I've said, bring whatever you want. No, you need to bring your best. You need to bring your best, whatever it is, whatever you have to offer God. It can't be some of the excess of what you have or just something you found in the corner of your life. It has to be all of you, the best of you, something that costs you something significant. And when you think of all that God has done for us, doesn't it stand to reason? Should we not also give the best to him? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Who of us would be willing to sacrifice one of our children for everybody else in the world? Who of us would be willing to sacrifice one of our children that we knew was gonna be walking this road, they were gonna be spat upon, they were gonna be kicked, they were gonna be beaten, they were gonna be rejected by many, but you were still going to allow them to be sacrificed for the sins of the world when you knew there were gonna be Hitlers out there, mass murderers, abusers, pedophiles, would you? You see, God's sacrificed and given us his best. He's given us his all. What more can he give us? And what more does he expect from us except our all? See, Cain was cursed and banished from the ground. Cursed and banished from the ground. What does that mean? It was much like his father Adam's being cursed and banished from the ground. If you go back to Genesis 3, it's not going to be on your screen. But if you look back one chapter behind chapter 4, 
Genesis chapter 3, listen to Adam's punishment. And, the man he, and to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. What's cursed? The ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. And by the sweat of your brow, will you, ha will you have enough food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made? For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. So what's, what's cursed for Adam? The ground. What's cursed for Cain? Nope. Cain is cursed. The ground was cursed for Adam, but Cain is banished from the ground. Cain is cursed. So, similar situation. Not really, because Adam didn't kill anybody. He disobeyed God, giving in to the deception of the enemy. Cain takes things further than his father ever did. And he takes what God has created, life itself, human form, and he acts like God in taking that life from the existence of the world. Thus, not only is the, crown, the, the ground cursed, but now Cain is cursed and banished from the ground that he tilled and grew things from. Now think of this, if that's your livelihood. See, Abel's livelihood was livestock. What did Cain do? He worked the ground like his father Adam did. And the ground that he worked, he's now banished from. It's not good stuff. See, jealousy and sin, when it becomes full-blown, ultimately separates us from the ones we love so much. It forces us out of normal, healthy relationships and into these obsessive relationships where we suck the life out of others. That's what jealousy and sin does. Jealousy and sin <coughs> leads us to believe that we're going to get so much from the life that we live. If I just go out and live however I want, do whatever I want with whomever I want, and I get what I desire the most, then I'm going to be the most fulfilled person in the world. And, and we see this on TV all the times with these documentaries of people that have achieved great wealth, great fame, and what is most of the testimony you hear from them? Eh, it's not what I thought it would be. Actually, it's a lot more troublesome and bothersome to me. I don't have a private moment. I can't even go out to the store because I noticed, and I just need a break. Or they get to this place of, of, of wealth and, and, and power and, and fame, and they find that even there, it's empty. Because what they've tried to buy with their money or what they've achieved with their fame or their power or their authority is just as empty as it was when they had nothing, not even two dimes to rub together. It's because the enemy will, will cause us <coughs> to, to push into this lie that if I just take this thing, then it will fulfill me. 
But see, in Jesus' economy, in Jesus' kingdom, he says, you have to give everything up. <laughs> no, 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 I don't want to give everything up. I like what I have. I, I love everything I have. I love everyone who's in my life, for the most part, on most days. And we fight to keep this level in our lives of what we would deem as successful. And we scrape and we, and we push through and we, 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 we claw our way to where we think we need to be. Only to find it's just as empty there as it was when we first started. We fill our lives with gadgets and gizmos and things we think are gonna make our life simpler. Instead, they make our lives more complicated. Those things that are supposed to save us time, save us energy, actually mound on and heap onto us more obligations and more responsibilities. I think 20 years ago when I first started ministry, there were no cell phones, not really. You carry the ones in the bags around, and, or the, we called them bricks at the time. Those are things you just can't hold on to your person, you know? And that's when Nextel was coming out with the radio things too. It was next in line for that. And, and those things were cool, but before I was easily accessible, I thought life was complicated. I can remember as a teenager, my parents couldn't get a hold of me. I saw that as great freedom. Because I could go all over Tarnation. I told my mom just this past, well, she broke her ankle and stayed with us uh, for about three months. And I said, did you know after church one Sunday morning, me and my friend Jeff drove to Tennessee. One, right, because we thought, oh, how cool would it be if after church, we just got in the car and we drove to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Now this is from central Kentucky, so it's a six hour drive down. No, not take that back. It's about a three, four hour drive down there. We're like, we'll drive down to Gatlinburg and get a Coke out of a pop machine and then drive back. And we did! And I think back, I mean, that is so stupid. And my mom said, you did what? Now I'm my mom's only child, she can't punish me now though. But I did get one of those, you did, you did not. Uh, yes, I did. And it was stupid. And I think back to those times and I think, you know, life was so much simpler. And some of us in the here and now are going to look back on these times and think, life is so much simpler. Why? Because in all of our attempts to make our lives better, we complicate it. All the way from Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, when they had everything they could ever want, everything they could ever need, and they were more like God than any of the rest of us had ever dreamt of being. The enemy deceives them into believing a lie. You'll become like God. They couldn't have become any more like God than they already were. Perfectly created in his image. But they gave in to temptation. They gave in to the lie, thinking it was gonna make their lives better. 
And they perpetuated, well, they started this curse that we perpetuate when we do the same things. But see, we justify in our own minds, well, it's not like what they did. If it's, if it's not hurting anybody else, what's the big deal? Banished from the ground. Banished from the ground from which you were made. And like Cain, we have a choice. We can control and subdue sin that crouches at our door, or we can open the door and allow it to control us and isolate us from God and from each other. Believing the lie that if we just do these things, it's going to set us free. No, if you stop doing those things, you can be set free. But you have to surrender it all to God. See, if Cain had said, okay, I need to subdue this sin. <clears throat> God, you're right. I'm angry. I feel dejected. But that's on me. That's not on you. I could have done better. And it's not about doing better. Okay, just hear me out here because there's some perfectionists in here that are saying, oh, I've got to do better. That is my biggest plague. I've got to do better. It's not perfect enough. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. Are you giving your best? Are you giving your all? And it's not about what you do. It's about all he did for you. But you also have to be fully and completely surrendered to him. Does this make sense? Okay, so let me look at it this way. Look at it this way. Faith without works is dead. So those two are coupled together. They are synonymous. All right? They are in symbiotic relationship, faith and works. If you have faith but you don't live out that faith, what good is your faith? Because you're proving to me that you don't really have it. You're proving to God, more specifically, you don't have it if you don't live it out. Living out your faith is an action. It's not something you just think of and feel. Faith is an action. That's why James can say faith, well, that works is dead. But it takes faith to please God. So faith without works is dead. It takes faith to please God, and I can only come to Jesus Christ through faith. But what do I give him? Do I sprinkle a little bit of what I have, hoping he'll accept it, or do I truly make the sacrificial offering and give him everything? See, Romans, Paul tells us that we are to be living sacrifices the kind that he'll find acceptable. Have you ever looked at your life that way? Everything you do, everything you are as an act of worship and an act of sacrifice to God? Everything you do, every action, every place you go, everything you say, are you a living sacrifice, a living offering unto God? It's a good question. That's something we need to chew on. You know another thing that happened to Cain? What was the other part of the punishment? You're going to be a homeless wanderer on the earth. Homeless wanderer. For the rest of his days, Cain would continue to search and travel. Yeah, we know a city came from Cain. You can read a little further on. And Cain's descendants would dwell in that area. But <clears throat> you can still be homeless and live in an area. 
Can't you? Yeah. See, I can be homeless and live in Butler for all my life. Maybe I helped to establish Butler back in the day, but I can still be homeless in Butler. Right? See, Cain was to be, was cursed to be a wanderer, homeless. Where, where would he consider his home have been with his family? He'd never be able to go back home again. Wouldn't get to be with mom and dad, the rest of his siblings outside of Abel. He, he would never get to know his nieces and nephews and extended family. Never be invited back to a family reunion. <laughs> See, this is what sin and jealousy does. It destroys the ones we love the most. For the person who's actively involved in pursuit of desires of the flesh, there's always this emptiness. There's always this despair that awaits. Jealousy and sin, <clears throat> they leave a person in desperate pursuit of the promise of lasting treasure, but the result is always this fool's gold, if you will. Sin always leaves a person not only isolated, but empty and homeless. And the problem of sin is that it takes us even deeper and even further away what we would consider to be true peace and true comfort of home. Cain was cursed to be a homeless wanderer, not because of what God had done to him, but because of what Cain had done to himself. Some of you here this morning know what it feels like to be lost and alone. Some of you know what it means to be desperate and longing for peace. Some of you understand the feeling of hopelessness and don't feel comfortable in your own skin. Take heart, because there is a God and there is a Savior, and he, he does prepare homes for us. No matter how far you wandered from home, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've gone, no matter how much junk you've allowed to control your life, no matter how wide you've allowed sin's door to be open in your life. One of the things we know about God is that he is a redemptive God of compassion who, yes, disciplines those he loves and allows punishment to happen, but he loves us so much that he's willing to receive a broken and contrite heart. He's willing to receive a fully repentant person. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, I love Jesus' words. One of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Jesus is with his disciples, and he begins to tell them these words, and I love this. Listen to what he says. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. Where, is, where was Jesus' father's home? Was it in Jerusalem? How about America? Yeah. Where is it? Heaven. Where no sin, no death, or anything else like that could ever invade or pervade. In my Father's house, there's more than enough room. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? What's Jesus saying to those who faithfully follow him? I'm going to go prepare a place for you in my father's house where my father is. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Why would he say that? To give us hope. 
and a future so that we know and can be secure in who we are and in whose we are as we surrender everything to him. Not as we just give him some of us, but all of us, the best of us. When everything is ready, Jesus goes on to say, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And you know the way to where I'm going. The way to where Jesus is going is Jesus himself. Jesus is the way. In the early days of the church, just after Jesus ascended to heaven, before they were called Christians at Antioch, they were known as followers of the way. Why don't we change the terminology again? (laughs) Because I think that would strike more conversations in Christian or Christianity. You're followers of the way? What's that? Is that a new religion? (laughs) Actually, no. It's not. What's the way? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. So what are you saying? If I want eternal life, what do I have to do? I have to follow him. Because I don't know any other way that will get me to where he is. And I want to be where he is. And I want want to know that he's prepared a place for me there. I want to feel comfortable in my own skin again. I don't want to feel isolated and alone anymore. I don't want to have to live this way for the rest of my life. I want to know that there's an end to sin and there's an end to death and there's an end to all of the stuff that keeps pounding at my door wanting me to open it and I know I've got to keep it closed to those things. I want to know there's an end to that and I want to know there's something better than that. I have to believe there's something better than that because if not, this is all in vain. Why do you think suicide rates are as high as they are now? And they're continuing to escalate, not only in the United States, but in Europe and other places. You don't see suicide rates escalating in places of great persecution. You see it happening in places of great freedom, where we've been lulled to sleep by the lies of the enemy. When your faith is on the line, when you have nothing else but all you have to give is yourself, knowing that it could cost you your life, then your life takes on significance and meaning. And if you die, it's not going to be by your own hands because you know the person that may take your life could only take your body. They can never take your soul. But we live in a world where, where I see and I, I have experienced people ending their own lives because they're so desperate. And they believe the lie that they got to escape their current circumstances because there's no hope for anything different. They feel like a homeless wanderer banished from the earth, and no one knows how deep the wound goes. And they're left with a mark, this curse, 
But Jesus lifted the curse at Calvary. He took away sin, he took away death, but he will not force you because just as sin sets and waits and crouches at your door. In Revelation chapter three, we get this beautiful imagery of the risen Christ who's knocking at our door and says, open up, it's me. Let me come in and I'll have supper with you. I'm not gonna kick your door in. You have to open it from the inside. Take off the latches, take off the locks. Let me come in, please. Why are we so willing to open the door to sin, but so callous to open the door to Christ? I don't get it. We could be like a cane and open the the door to sin and suffer the curse of Cain. Or we can be like Abel, offer God our best, and know that the one that may be able to take the body can never take the soul. It's your choice. God will never force your hand because as a good, truthful lover of men and women, his love is not forceful. As our worship team comes forward today, and as we close out today's message, some of you resonated with that. Some of you resonate with Cain's story. Some of you resonate with feeling so uncomfortable in the life you're living, in the skin, in your own skin. Some of you feel desperate and isolated and alone. And that's where the enemy wants to keep you. Truth be known, he wants you to believe the lie that nobody else understands what's what's going on in your life. Nobody else cares, but see, he knows he cares. He's the one who's acquainted with our griefs, acquainted with our sorrows, as the prophet Isaiah told us in the Old Testament. He knows what you're going through. And he doesn't want you to walk that road alone. And actually, he wants to call you out from that. And even at times that you go through death's dark valley, he wants to walk with you through those times. But he's not going to force himself on you. There's two doors. (laughs) Like every movie you've ever watched of suspense, there's two doors. Which one will you open? There's two pills. Do you want to take the one that's going to keep you in blissful ignorance? And you want to take this pill that'll open you to realities beyond your wildest dreams. See, Jesus Christ offers you a way out and a way to freedom, a way to hope. Doesn't mean your life is going to be perfectly rosy this side of heaven, but outside of this world, there is a God who works in this world and desires for you to be with him. Read the last two chapters of the Bible. Read the last two chapters of Revelation. I want you to see how it all ends. You don't get the perfect picture because even the author of Revelation couldn't describe with great detail and specificity everything he experienced. But at least we get a glimpse of what awaits us. If you want to be prayed for, if, if you 
are here this morning and you're like, I don't know how to do this. I'm not saved or I've fallen away. I'm doing my own thing and I know I need to come back to Christ or you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and you need somebody to walk with you through that, come to my right, your left. We'll We'll walk with you as best we can. If you want to pray alone, if you want to make things right with God on your own time and in your own way, you come to my left or right. These altars are not just pieces of furniture. They're places where we meet with God. Now, you can meet with God where you're sitting, but there's something about getting up and taking action that stirs our own spirits to connect with the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, in this place, I pray that you'd be glorified this morning. That God, if anybody came in through these doors, stressed, worrisome, lost, struggling, maybe only giving part of themselves to you, I pray that they would feel the weight of the conviction of your Holy Spirit on their lives. And that God, they would be drawn into your presence. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your presence would rest so heavily upon them that they would throw up the white flag of surrender and say, I give up. I'm ready to be a part of God's kingdom. God, we know revival starts in the hearts and the lives of individuals before it breaks out in a mighty wave and a move of the Spirit among communities. Let it start here this morning as we surrender all to you. It's in your Son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.